Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict fight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 17, season 1, and today I talk to historian Dr. Yuji Utechka, an associate professor at the University of Kradit Kravlova in the Czech Republic. He talks about his recent book on the morale and motivation of Czech soldiers during the Great War. This book is published by Bear Gone Books. I spoke to Yuji from his home in the Czech Republic. Hi, Yuji. Welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the motivation and morale of Czech soldiers in the First World War? Hi, uh, uh, Tom. I'm, first of all, thanks a lot for having me here. <laughs> My name is Yuji Hupteczka and uh, I'm, uh, I'm uh, currently associate professor uh, at a small but lovely university right in the middle of Central Europe, the University of Hellas or Königgrad, as it's, it's as it's known in uh, English-speaking world. Uh, I specialize in modern military history. Always was interested in modern military history, but always was interested in uh, approaching it in a, in, a, in a different way than it's usually uh, being done. And I got to this topic through uh, the, my early studies into the, the U.S. Civil War, and uh, where I basically learned that there's plenty of interesting methodology that can be applied to studying warfare. And uh, I ended up realizing that none of these methodologies was actually ever used with, uh, in a Czech historical uh, writing on uh, Czech military history. So I sort of went and tried to search for interesting topics in Czech military history, in Czech modern military history. And uh, Czech-speaking soldiers of the Austro-Hungarian army uh, are sort of, they are, of course, a theme in Czech culture. We know all know the good soldier Schweig thing. And, uh, but I realized that they were barely ever subject to serious study because mostly they are just stereotyped as, you know, uh, really bad soldiers sabotaging the uh, Austrian war effort, being really anti-Austrian, being very anti-war. And whenever there is a historical debate about them, even among you know scholars, it's always about loyalty, but never about their military experience, the war experience. The, the they were never studied as soldiers, and because I was uh, interested in uh, gender history, I realized that gender history could be really useful in uh, actually analyzing the question not just about loyalty but about the military experience itself. And so I ended up asking the question, is really masculinity a useful tool or useful, useful perspective to uh, analyze, uh, analyze uh, military experience? And not many really, there are plenty, of course, there are plenty of histories of gender history, of uh, gender histories of First World War, gender histories of Central Europe in the First World War, Austrian, uh, and so on, but very rarely gender historians go and study warfare, study soldiers, study combat. 
and very rarely uh, military historians even those who, in, who are interested in you know motivation and morale use the perspective of gender in uh, you know studying these topics so that the, the whole final idea was sort of to connect these two perspectives and uh, bring in and try to figure out whether it can be really useful in studying the case of Czech soldiers in the First World War. Now, before we get into the detail, could you just give us a bit of background on the ge- on the political status of the geographical area that is now known as the Czech Republic and indeed the area or the country that you are ta- speaking from? What was it in 1914? Oh God, where do we start? <laughs> it's really it's complicated. <laughs> it's everything's complicated about Central Europe. <laughs> but uh, of course, the, the, what we talk about historically is the so-called uh, Bohemian Crown lands, or the, the lands of the Bohemian Crown. Basically, Bohemia, Moravia, and Austria and Silesia, which is uh, the lands that are united by the fact that whoever holds the crown of Bo- King of Bohemia is sort of uh, rules these three historical lands. And of course, ever since 16th century, it was the Habsburgs uh, who held the crown of uh, kings of Bohemia. Therefore, they, they ruled these lands. And over, over uh, centuries, they sort of succeeded in stripping, stripping these lands of most of their autonomy uh, and uh, re- replacing them at first with sort of enlightened centralism. Uh, by the end of 18th century, and then throughout 19th century, uh, liberal constitutional monarchy that this the Austria-Hungary ends up being in late 19th century. Uh, so with, and of course, Bohemian, the Bohemian crown lands are located in the western part of Austria-Hungary, in the Austrian part of the dual monarchy. So this is Austria really, and really part of the Austrian part. Or monarchy or so-called Cisleitania, as it was called those days. And one, one thing that has to be emphasized here, uh, the, these lands in connection with the topic of my book, uh, are not in any way Czech lands ethnically. The Czech Republic today is really, after the throughout 20th century, it was basically ethnically cleansed. And so it's like 98% Czech uh, uh, ethnically. But in the early 20th century, it was really multi-ethnic, multilingual space, as was the whole empire. And the Bohemian lands were basically the same. So Czech speakers are the majority here. But on, uh, about one third of the population actually spoke different languages or different first language because the, the census was not asking people about nationality. It was asking people about the first language. Most of the minority in Bohemian lands were Germans or German speakers, but hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps a million, uh, were bilingual or even multilingual. And uh, even today, historians sort of uh, debate the, the, the really one of the big issues in Central European history these days is the question of indif- national indifference. So we really, not, we are not sure how many of those people who subscribed to speak Czech or German really felt to be Czech or German. But uh, what we know for sure, and what's quite obvious, by 1914, uh, through the education, because of the educational system was sort of thoroughly nationalized and so on, 
most people, especially in big cities and uh, especially uh, in, in the in the middle class uh, level and higher, with better educated people, felt sort of identifying being Czech, German, Polish, or or whatever. But these most of the time, these identities never really they ne they didn't stand in in opposition to Austrian patriotism. So it was in 1914, it was very much possible to feel Czech uh, and to feel Austrian at the same time. It was not, they, they were not opposites. But one of the things that the, the Great War did was uh, not just to the soldiers, it was it did it for most of the people in, in the region, was that it sort of split this, uh, this uh, structure of identities and the national identities or class identities or even local identities suddenly started to stand opposite, increasingly opposite to Austrian patriotism and sort of the unity of the of the feeling of being a member or a subject to the to this whole great empire evaporated uh, during the war. So what was the Czech military contribution to the Austro-Hungarian army during the war? And where did the majority of, Aus of Czech-speaking soldiers serve during that uh, conflict? Uh, Czech uh, contribution sort of uh, was, uh, you know, according to the statistics, and we really don't, the army didn't keep statistics of nationalities. Uh, and uh, did, didn't use the statistics to actually sort of account for nationalities that, that served it. But we have sort of, we can use the language statistics uh, and have, we have only sort of rough estimates here. But we know that about one and a half million men from Bohemian lands served in Austrian Hungarian army, enlisted during the war. And uh, based on peacetime language statistics, we estimated about 1 million of them spoke Czech as their primary language. Uh, out of those, actually, more than 100,000 uh, died in the war and about 200,000 were permanent, ended up permanently disabled by the end of the war. Uh, Czech soldiers served in all capacities in Austro-Hungarian army. With all weapons, uh, I, I, before this, during this podcast, I actually checked this, checked uh, some statistics. They were surprisingly overrepresented with uh, cavalry units a little bit, uh, but uh, in general, Czechs were sort of the average Austrian soldiers. So there was about 12, 12 to eleven to thirteen percent of Czechs in the infantry, in artillery. Even uh, even in the navy, because uh, Czech or Bohemian lands were uh, sort of the engineering powerhouse of the empire. They were the industrial heartland of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So there was plenty of engineering education and plenty of uh, Czech uh, sailors. Even though Czech lands or Bohemian lands had no no, uh, no, no access to sea, serve in the Austro-Hungarian navy throughout the war in the Mediterranean. And uh, so, and so because, because of being this average Austrian soldier, they served all over the place. So it's the Eastern Front of 1914 uh, till 1917, the, the, the Serbian Front 1914 till 1916, the Balkans 
later on basically sort of the security borderline then turning into a front line in 1918 in the Balkans of course the Italian front in the Dolomites and the Alps in uh, uh, after May 1915 but you can find Czech Czech soldiers in an Austro-Hungarian uniform on the Western Front with some uh, divisions lent to the German army in 1918 and even in the Palestine where uh, a detachment of artillery, Austro-Hungarian artillery served along the Ottoman army in 1916-1917 so they were really all, all over the place and of course one thing that always has to be mentioned because it's the Czech experience that makes it into the textbooks <laughs> is that we had the Czechoslovak Legion, which was the sort of uh, cornerstone of the the Czech nationalist or well, sort of project of Czech independence. That's uh, really minority of Czech politicians who went into exile in 1914, led by Tomáš Masaryk sort of uh, came up with the idea that this war will lead to national independence. So they ended up sort of uh, supporting the creation of uh, exile army. And this exile army is the Czechoslovak Legion. But just as a comparison, uh, only 90,000 soldiers enlisted into the Czechoslovak Legion over the course of the war, while as I mentioned, 1 million served in the Austro-Hungarian army. So that the Czechoslovak Legion was never really the you know the majority experience for uh vast numbers of czech czech uh, veterans or czech men so what is the predominant historiography around czech soldiers combat motivation during the great war oh well it's uh <laughs> because i mentioned the czechoslovak legion so the dominant historiography is really based on explaining this, you know, this, the, the difference between the myth and the reality. So we have the Czechoslovak Legion, which, which of course is the cornerstone of the independent republic after 1918. But then we have to explain away the fact that most Czech soldiers actually served in the wrong, in the wrong army. And so the sort of the easy explanation everybody sort of was okay with to start with was that they served because they are forced uh, first to do so, and they were serving as really, uh, you know, really bad soldiers, uh, good soldiers, fakes, <laughs> sabotaging the war effort, and basically waiting to desert at the first at the first moment uh, possible. And this was a narrative that was pushed forward by the the sort of official narrative of Czechoslovak public memory in 1920s. And it was the official narrative of all the, all the exiled politicians during the war, of course, because they needed evidence to support their claim for independence with the great powers. So they were basically telling everyone that Czechs are sort of being uh, forced to serve in a war they don't want. And so the, ironically, the same narrative was pushed by uh, forward by German-Austrian nationalists in Austria-Hungary, because for them, this narrative was uh, was the sort of supporting evidence to keep Czech nationalists from away from uh, political parity of any, of any sort. So this was narrative that emerged during the war and it was really sort of subscribed to by everyone in 1920s, 1930s. The veterans were not really 
not, not always happy with it, but nobody really cared about their opinion. And the communist historiography only sort of switched uh, the position. So for the communist historiography, the result was the same. Czech soldiers didn't want to serve in Austria-Hungary, always wanted to desert, but not because they were Czech nationalists, but because of their class consciousness, because that this was the imperialist war, of course. And only after 1990, this debate about loyalty really sort of balanced itself out, but it was always about loyalty. So the historiography of Czech soldiers' motivation was always about asking questions if whether they were loyal or not. So this, this is something really get, that got into even English uh, English speaking historiography for most of the 20th century. Whenever you read a book uh, uh, on Austria-Hungary in, in the Great War and Czechs are mentioned, uh, the, basically the first moment they are there, it always goes to the issue of loyalty and whether they were loyal or not. And uh, the, the, some some authors past decade or two started to question the basic you know the basic uh, stereotype of disloyal Czechs. Uh, we have works by Richard Line who uh, uncovered the the way Austria Austrian Hungary Austria Hungarian army mishandled the, some of the some of the infamous cases of mass desertions or books by Alex Watson, Mark Cornwall, who really uh, started to uh, change the narrative a little bit, put it into context. But uh, from my point of view, Czech soldiers really deserve to be sort of studied as soldiers first and only Czechs as uh, second, because that uh, was never really done. So that was, that was the motivation behind my book, really. <laughs> Which leads me on to, conveniently, on to the next question. From your research, what did you find motivated Czech combatants? Well, uh, mostly, I would say, it could be, we can apply this uh, to many soldiers throughout the, you know, throughout the Great War everywhere. Uh, but there were some, you know, local differences, so to speak, and uh, or differences based on culture and based on uh, the situation, of course, in, uh, in Central Europe at the time. Uh, and one thing that I have to say sort of uh, first is that it's really class and education dependent, and which, of course, sort of uh, uh, skews the perspective of the sources, because most of the sources we have is comes from the more educated soldiers, so they tend to be more uh, nationalists, of course, especially with the memoirs, because the memoirs are written post-war when we all know how it ended up. Austria-Hungary is no more, so the memoirs tend to be more nationalistic than diaries, for example. And uh, But in general, I would say that initially the motivation to enlist and was not really about any kind of any kind of enthusiasm for the war. There was very very little true enthusiasm on the part of Czech-speaking population. There was more happening with the German-speaking population in Bohemia and Moravia. But still, uh, it was for most. There there were some moments of you know Czech uh, public or, uh, people gathering on the streets and even singing some patriotic songs in Czech. That happened, 
And but that was mostly sort of this uh, support for the state in in a moment of crisis. So in 1914, everybody sort of understood. Okay, the bad thing a bad thing happened to our uh, to the successor to our throne. The state goes to war. It's something for its citizens to do is to you know to support the state. It's nothing to be debated. So it's really. The initial initial motivation was something like passive acceptance of reality, or uh, general general consent. I would say consent uh, that led to very quick enlistment, and then of course this leads to massive social pressure. And that I found this probably the most important motivation: the social pressure. Everybody's pressuring everybody, like. There's no basically no one who's trying to uh, hide away somewhere in at least initially, and uh, so this uh, this general common interest uh, creates uh, this sense of cohesion that everybody you know everybody as, as one soldier actually wrote in his diary everybody's going so I have to go too. There's no way to debate that, and uh, of course initially 1914 the big um, the big topic is that there's this belief that there will be no war, really, because we have to realize this is the fourth, third or fourth mobilization of Austro-Hungarian army in six years. So the Austro-Hungarian army is mobilizing for war <laughs> very, very often, and it never ended up with, in a war before. So why should it be different now? Of course, this was very short-lived hopes. And uh, then after the war started, most people actually believed in that this, this is going to be a short war, probably a terrible war, but still short. Of course, it didn't work out. And when the soldiers were sort of serving on through the, through the, throughout the war, and this, we're talking about the sustaining motivation, what sustained them in the service, I'd say that the, the constant sort of Increasingly gave way to uh, uh, co coercion of by like institutional, of course, from on the side of from the part of the army, but sort of societal co uh, coercion that everybody was sort of coerced to stay in the ranks uh, and felt coerced to stay there. And of course, this this was a result of the increasing, you know, the casualties, uh, war fatigue, and uh, exhaust general exhaustion, the, the miserable conditions in the army. Well, the logistics of Austria-Hungarian army was increasingly bad, so soldiers were literally starving by 1917. And in 1918, basically, the only thing they talk about in their personal accounts is, you know, searching for food or having no food, and. The bad treatment by the army, we'll probably get to it later on. So this sort of co created this uh, feeling that this uh, that the disillusionment and probably demotivation. So the initial motivation <laughs> turned into a demotivation, but uh, at the end, but even though, it, it, even, even if we realize the situation was this bad, it's really surprising that most of these guys served on grudgingly with sort of the deep disillusionment and very demotivated served on until like late summer early, early fall of 1918 uh, most of them still stayed in the ranks as very 
passive, very uh, disinterested, and I would say mentally divorced soldiers, divorced from the Austro-Hungarian war effort. They, in 1918, and it's not very special to Czech soldiers, I'd say, but uh, they had their reasons to be even more disillusioned. But uh, in 1918, most Austro-Hungarian soldiers don't really care how the war will end, for, only for it to end. So if, if it, but it's if it's surprising in the case of Czech troops because we we, would, for example, expect for them to hope that Austria-Hungary will be no more and there will be new new beginning of some sort. That's still, I'd say most of them in the spring of 1918, for example, hope for the final offensive on the Piave River to succeed because that would mean the war will be over. <laughs> and when the offensive doesn't succeed, so they hope for, for Austria-Hungary to lose because the war will be over. So whatever brings the war to its end, as a good thing in 1918. And did you find that sort of societal and cultural influences underpinned uh, their motivation? I'm thinking about social norms or ideas of masculinity or gender. Did you think those were important? I, as I was asking, uh, why these men did these men fight until the very end? Very so often, like most of them didn't deserve they didn't desert most of them stayed in the ranks if, if they survived uh and it, it of course led me to these underlying factors and uh first uh it had actually showed itself in the initial motivation issue uh and for, for example for young soldiers it's obvious quite obvious that young soldiers uh treat military service in a different way than soldiers with families, with established careers and basically established life stories. So this is about sort of the masculine life story uh, being produced. And for young soldiers who were on the sort of on the verge of enlistment, uh, many of them actually talk about this situation in terms of you know attaining full manhood because in, uh, and it's quite obvious, and it's the same all over Europe. I think uh, that when war comes in 1914, the society and the social norms change. So the suddenly masculinity is becomes identified with military service, and uh, whatever is not military service is not really masculine. So for men to attain masculinity or keep it, even keep it meant to be able to ideally to don a uniform <laughs> and if not to be able to explain why they're not in uniform it happened throughout bohemia for example with workers in factories having some rough time explaining explaining uh, on the streets to people like why my son is in in the army fighting at the front at the front why you guys are not <laughs> and for example so, so Factory workers who were, of course, spared military service because of their uh, uh, skilled work, for example, in, in, in munitions factories, they had this experience. So, for and in ma many soldiers actually mentioned this. Like, if I wanted to be treated as a man, everybody who's a man is doing this, so I, I want to be a man. <laughs> so, masculinity becomes sort of an ideological tool 
that is used in propaganda, of course. That's propaganda posters are always working with this topic. And uh, it end up, ends up working even with those soldiers who otherwise really don't subscribe to, uh, to the, you know, the more obvious political marketing tools, so to speak. And uh, then I, uh, then uh, ma speaking about masculinity, it's, uh, I felt that it sort of ended up propping up the sustaining motivation as well, because it sort of helped the group dynamics of uh, creating the wartime comradeship, as they call it. Or the camaraderie among the in the primary group, uh, which sort of first of all enabled men to be uh, to stay being men and still survive psychologically and emotionally survive war. So they could express emotions, for example, they could be dependent on others, which is something really not really manly in the early 20th century. Uh, and express their dependence to their comrades because they are comrades. So they have this really special relationship. Uh, and this sort of created the dynamic of uh, cohesion within primary groups. And if there was a good leader uh, who sort of was able to point this dynamic in the, in the right direction, they'd really, it really worked out for, for the army. Of course, it, it could work out the opposite direction. And it was increasingly like this, this case that uh, the, the primary group interests s s increasingly ran against the interests of the army. And uh, the other thing, of course, was that the massive casualties tended to destroy these primary groups very often. So uh, this really, this uh, these dynamics uh, ended up uh, sort of being dysfunctional with the, uh, within the Austro-Hungarian army because of the pressures of, uh, of war and uh, the situation the, these units found that set themselves in mostly being destroyed at the end. Uh, so this motivational potential of masculinity was sort of uh, doubtful because sometimes on, it worked the opposite way, actually. I, and I found that these norms of masculinity uh, worked against soldiers' motivation. For example, uh, when men entered the service, uh, it, uh, they ended up, even though they did it for, with the idea of keeping their masculine status, they uh, ended up realizing that the, the whole hierarchy of class and uh, connected with gender hierarchy so that the hierarchy of power from peacetime society was really upturned uh, into a new completely different hierarchy in the army where people who were you know supposedly uh, respectable gentlemen were suddenly being commanded by <laughs> uh, these brutes ineducated who were given power to command uh, other people and this was sort of creates this massive dyna this dynamics of increasing complaints. And it's sort of similar in many other uh, military structures. But with Czechs, it was really even more difficult because for them, it was very often being commanded by people who were uh, increasingly nationalist, German, Hungarian reserve officers who got replaced the career officers who died early in the war. And these people sort of projected the nationalist optics into the treatment of the soldiers. 
which of course the soldiers then projected these national objects into the grievances that they felt. Uh, on the other side, uh, the, the whole situation was very damage, damaging to masculinity as well. So modern warfare, of course, doesn't lend itself very well to improving uh, one's masculine status uh, through any kinds of heroics, basically. It's very unheroic experience, making men into passive targets. And one of the things I felt throughout the book and, and all the topics I covered was it's about this, this sort of underlying sense of losing control and losing power. And uh, modern masculinity is basically based or structured around power and around uh, control over oneself and over other people. And what these soldiers experience is that they lose all this during, during their military service. They, they, they lose it in combat. They, you know, they have no control about the way they will die. They have no control about the way they, will be, they would be wounded. They have no way to do anything about it. In a war where 70% of all wounds are caused by, art, by uh, artillery. And uh, the same way they lose control and power to, to people they disrespect, to people who they feel disrespect them. So it's ended, this ended up sort of underlying the sense of uh, disillusionment, not just that the, the situation's bad, we have nothing to eat, but it's really, it's really uncomfortable from the point of view of staying a man. Uh, this was really uh, one topic that really uh, was very mentioned very often was the, 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 the consequence the war had for one's body. And of course, and very often here, soldiers really, even those who are not really vocal that much about it, they really use the language of masculinity when they talk about their own body and the, the way uh, the war basically disfigures, mutilates, or destroys their body, not just through, you know, through wounds, but uh, for example, again, we go back to the horrible supply situation. Uh, most of them are um, in 1918 complaining that they, they just don't look like men in 1918 because they are, the average weight in some units was about 50 kilograms uh, because these guys were literally starving. So they feel really emasculated physically by, by war. And uh, this emasculation was going back to social societal norms and societal context was even made worse when they realized that the same situation was happening back home with the economy of Austria-Hungary basically crumbling in ever since 1917 and uh, there's so their families are starving back home back home and they're they are supposed to be the you know the the breadwinners the protectors of their families there was part of the official propaganda in this war was you should protect your families against these barbarians from the east it was part of Austrian propaganda so they are protecting their families but the families are dying <laughs> of starvation back home how that, how does it make sense like how does it really can can they play and this and increasingly they complain that basically it's impossible to be a good soldier and supposedly a man and it's possible, it's impossible to be a good father 
and, uh, and supposedly a man, for example. And of course, it all is all more complicated with their losing control over their wives and uh, basically women back home. Uh, the big topic being women taking over the responsibilities, uh, masculine responsibilities, supposedly in the gender order. And in case the, these women are successful, it makes the soldiers feel redundant. And if they are not successful, it makes them feel desperate because they want to go home and help their family. So, and this is one of the, uh, for example, I, I didn't really do too much uh, research into the issue of desertion, but uh, it seems like the key role in deserting was basically this sense of preserving oneself uh, for, his, uh, for his loved ones, basically, trying to go home and be trying to survive, of course, the survival instinct, but going home to survive for for someone and possibly to help out back home as much as it was possible. So this was really something that really undermined. This, and this there was really a, a double-edged sword that it sort of could motivate, you know, propaganda used it to motivate the soldiers. And soldiers were kept in contact as much as possible with their families through mail and leaves, home leaves and so on. But of course, they were kept in contact with the increasing and dire situation at home. So that uh, ended up being damaging, uh, uh, damaging to uh, their sense of masculinity. I, I don't say that this is was this the, the issue of gender was really, you know, the key issue here, but it's always sort of in the background of all the other issues we we talk about here right now. And my penultimate question is, what impacted the policies and efforts of the Austro-Hungarian state and Austro-Hungarian army have in have on improving um, or degrading the morale and motivation of Czech soldiers in its service? Well, uh, <laughs> put simple, uh, the, everything they did made it worse. <laughs> uh, made, made it worse for everyone at the end, for, for the army and for, for the soldiers as well. Uh, and for all the soldiers, basically. But so Austria-Hungarian army was really bad at HR and uh, it was really bad at HR regarding uh, minority troops. And Czech speaking troops were probably the largest singled out minority that was conceived or perceived to be different. Uh, because the army, Austrian army was always paranoid about uh, internal dissent. Uh, it was a big problem in the revolution 1848, 1849. So for decades after the revolution, the Hungarians were considered to be, you know, the, the, the worst possible, possible dissenters. But with the increasingly nationalist politics in Austria-Hungary later in the 19th century, uh, and the, especially Austria-Hungarian after the Austria-Hungarian compromise, the Hungarians became the really, you know the, the the defendants of the compromise because it was really beneficial to them. So other groups became suspect uh, even before the war. For example, the Austria-Hungarian army didn't really believe. Czech, uh, Czech uh, conscripts would show up in 1914, so it, 
it changed the mobilization plans and mobilizing uh, another army corps from from Styria so they so they could replace the Czechs who would not show up of course they, they showed up and everybody was surprised but the moment uh, the first defeats came late late in 1914 uh, of course everybody was started to search for scapegoats and these scapegoats were sort of already at hand because there was these suspect nationalities as they call them so it the uh, as an illustration i always use uh, the way patriotic songs were treated by the army uh, because when the when the regiments were uh, were marching to the train stations in august 1914 the czech dominated german dominated regiments were singing their own songs in german Czech dominated regiments were singing their own songs in Czech. For example, they were singing Gdanumov Mui, which is the current national anthem of Czech Republic, or uh, and the national anthem of future Czechoslovakia in 1914. But it was a Czech patriotic song, and they were allowed to do that. They were marching through the streets singing that song, and it was okay because it was a patriotic song. In uh, October, or I think October or November 1914, it was banned to sing this, uh, this especially this, this song, or at the end, any other song in Czech. So for Czech soldiers, for example, this, this made, it made it really difficult to be patriotic because you were basically were not allowed to be patriotic in Czech language because Czech language made you suspect. The situation got much worse after the, the spring 1915 supposed uh, mass desertions of the 28th Regiment and then the 36th Regiment of Infantry on the Eastern Front. They were not really desertions, but the army was really sort of, again, we're talking about scapegoats here. So something went wrong and uh, to uh, blame someone else, the local commanders basically blamed the Czechs. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it sort of ballooned into a huge affair. The regiment was publicly disbanded, which never happened in Austria-Hungarian army in the past 300 years. And because of this, Czechs were increasingly sort of being seen as the traitors, even by the public, by the general public. So speaking in public in Czech language as a soldier would uh, give you some really uh, uh, into some uncomfortable situations. People would laugh at, laugh at you. People would, you know, show up their hands in the air that you're, yeah, you're a traitor, right? And of course, the officers who were increasingly reserve officers, as I mentioned, replacements for the career officers, they were increased coming from nationalist background very often. So they, they were treating Czech soldiers even worse. And this created this sort of, you know, vicious circle of uh, the sense of lack of respect. A lack of respect for the sacrifice they were doing, uh, especially with the better educated Czech soldiers, because they expected to be respected for what they were doing for the Austria-Hungary. And one of them said, well, we didn't want this war or we didn't care about it, uh, so to speak, but we still fought in this war. We still died in this war. And what, did, what, we, got in, uh, what we got for it was, you know, being called traitors. <laughs> And uh, uh, so this caused this, you know, very slow, uh, but uh, uh, quite apparent 
sliding slope of uh, increased disillusionment and increasing, increasingly the anti-war attitude uh, it was sort of common to everyone. But uh, this anti-war attitude with Czech soldiers was increasingly uh, anti-Austrian anti in the sense that Austria is the country, basically the state that failed its soldiers by the way that it treated them. So this, while this, this general demoralization was a tendency that's obvious with everybody in the Austro-Hungarian army towards the end of the war, with Czechs, it's sort of even more, more obvious because there's this added insults to injury, so to speak. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your book and your research? Well, uh, <laughs> the books, uh, of course, if you're into uh, the, uh, the listeners would be interested uh, in uh, reading something out of my book, right? that of, uh, the introduction is uh, freely available on the uh, publisher's website, berghangbooks.com, where you can buy the book. And uh, under my, uh, I was uh, thinking about uh, where actually, I'm thinking about where my work is sort of easily available and probably the best way to do it would be just to visit the researchgate.com or academia.edu profiles I have and there's some of my articles that I wrote in English are either available uh, there in, uh, uh, freely or a reference there. Recently I published uh, two articles uh, last year, an article on uh, Czech, uh, basically the way Czech soldiers uh, demobilized after the First World War and how they interpreted the experience in context of being remobilized uh, into Czechoslovak service because Czechoslovakia was, of course, basically born out of war against its own population, against Hungary and against Poland. So many of these soldiers we speak, we talk about, they came home and were basically pushed into service uh, along the Czechoslovak legions fighting in Slovakia against Hungarians and so on. So uh, this is an article about you know this post-war experience and the way it worked as a part of the effort to re reconfigure the public memory of the First World War, like basically the, the veterans trying to point out that they fought for Czechoslovakia too. Another article I have is that was just, it's just recently being published is uh, on a, it's in a collection of, uh, uh, on languages at war. It's a very interesting collection on uh, language issues uh, in various armies in the First World War. Uh, published by uh, Bloomsbury uh, this spring, and I have a uh, I have a piece there on uh, Czech soldiers, uh, and what I actually talked about here is the the way language was increasingly used against them. Their own language was used against them, and how this uh, sort of misuse of language policies by the Austro-Hungarian army led to uh, well realizing these soldiers to realize that they are after all Czechs. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna actually, my future work will be potentially interesting too, because I am currently 
preparing project on uh, the home front, uh, uh, my hometown of Olomouc, where I live, which was a fortress, uh, ex-fortress uh, garrison town and a railway hub during the First World War uh, in, in Central Moravia. And it's a really interesting case of, you know, large garrison, German dominated town with, uh, but Ger with German speaking elites, but general population being increasingly Czech and so this national class and uh, sort of structural conflict that uh, happened, that, that was the potential was here and that sort of got to the surface during the war. So the wartime history of Olomouc is something that I'm really interested in these days. <laughs> Uji, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you, Tom, for, uh, for your time and for uh, having me here on this uh, fascinating podcast. Thank you.